G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. Well, Dad, today we are, we've got a special guest with us. Juliet Trail is someone who I know you've had a little bit of involvement with through the Coincidence Project and has done some really interesting research on a couple of different topics that we'll be talking about today, but we've called today's episode Cultivating Positive Networks. So I suppose uh, just as a, a little bit of a way of background, Dad, you and I have spoken a little bit on the podcast before about the idea that psychology these days is a very individual field in some ways in terms of the therapy that we give in psychology is very often individually administered but there are so many benefits to being involved in networks and groups and maybe a little bit more social than just a one-on-one therapy session and so we're very much looking forward to chatting with some of that sort of stuff at, uh, with you today about uh, Juliet. And we're very fortunate to have you with us Juliet. You've done doctoral research on networking, network enablers, so the kind of characteristics that people have that contribute to networks working in a positive way. And because networks are so much part of our life, it might be at work, it might be in sporting clubs, it might be through interest groups, recognising different ways that they contribute to our lives, but also when they're working well and also how we can contribute to the positive functioning of networks. Well, we thought you were the expert who was uh, best, <laughs> best for us to interview on this topic. Well, thank you. It's a delight to be here with both of you. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm uh, travelling to you virtually from Virginia in the United States, and I have the, the Blue Ridge Mountains here, not far from my home in Charlottesville, as, as my background today. Um, yeah, and I would say... Yeah, I agree with you completely that within psychology, there can be a kind of fixation on the individual and the therapy of the individual is, is much more common. You know, there's only a, uh, a much more limited range of therapies that are involving relationships in family therapy or in marriage counseling. And then occasionally with group group practices that might have a lot of interactions and relationship building that are part of the process of healing. But other than that, there's so much more focus on, on just one person. And, you know, fundamentally, the field of social psychology has been growing about as fast as the field of positive psychology. It's a much more new, progressive area. I've, I've worked with colleagues in the field of social psychology and learned from them although it's not my specific training and, and background. So for folks out there that haven't heard much about it, I do encourage you to check out social psychology. In addition to positive psychology, there's so much we can learn from there. And one of the fundamental things I've learned from my colleagues and friends in social psychology is just how much uh, evidence we're now being able to demonstrate that shows we need each other. We need one another, we need relationships. And part of what I appreciate and value so much about positive psychology is that, you know, we tend to talk about mental health and use that term if someone is struggling, if they're suffering in some way, but we all have health and we all have mental health because we all have brains and minds and hearts, emotions and spirits and experiences. And we're just not aware of our mental health so much when it's functioning well, when it's serving us and we're not in distress. Uh, but we always have it. And so part of what we're talking about today are perhaps some of the positive aspects that are possible to cultivate a very strong, robust, resilient type of mental health, mental well-being that's quite possible for us. And, you know, part of that is the social aspect of it. There are individual things that we can each be aware of and do. And all of those things are things we can learn things we can bring more conscious awareness and focus to and improve our skills and capacities. And that's an important element. I worked for more than 20 years in higher education for colleges and universities. And a big part of my focus was on leadership development, working especially with faculty, but I worked for five years for a school of medicine. So those were professional healthcare providers, doctors and nurses, and medical students and residents. But I also worked for diversity and engineering and for College of Arts and Sciences before eventually working in contemplation as a new field up and coming within higher education and bringing a more contemplative approach to how we do our work together and our learning together, whether we're professionals that are researching and delivering those things or whether we're students learning them. And in all of those fields, what I saw is sometimes there's a hesitance to dive in because uh, there's been a lot of notions that some people are just great at this. And then if I'm not, I shouldn't work, you know, maybe I don't want to think about it. I'll just put it off to one side. And 
the truth is none of us are born perfect at all of these things. None of us are even born great at them. We're born quite a blank slate, you know, and we learn as we go. And so any of the things we talk about today, it's reassuring, I think, to know that, you know, I've had 20 years of experience, including my doctoral research, looking at how we can cultivate these qualities. So it's really all about the growth mindset. And that was a key to everything that I saw in my research. The fundamental baseline we should build from is just that uh, we're all capable of being well. We have moments when we're well. We have moments when we're in distress and we're not well. That's common to all of us across all persons. And we can all cultivate greater aspects that are going to contribute to our current and future capacity for well-being and not just our own, but in relationships we're giving and receiving. It's very reciprocal. That's why the notion of networks is really just an expansion of the notion of relationships. But most of the things that I'm talking about really carry across, whether we're talking about how we build a relationship with our children as a parent or our best friends, members of our family, significant others, um, or colleagues. These are really universal qualities. Yes, look, actually, one thing I mentioned there, Juliet, that intrigues me is there are a number of points of overlapping interest that we've had. Actually, the reason I got into psychology was because of so social psychology. I found that fascinating, even in first-year psychology, learning that people live in different family groups, like there's the kibbutz in Israel where children are largely raised by nurses. They might spend about an hour a day with their parents. There'd be cross-generational families, say, in Hawaii in different cultures. And I used to think, well, all families would be a bit the same, like a nuclear family. And it made me aware that there was a lot of different ways of living and going about connecting with each other that I was not so aware of. And then you mentioned about leadership, well, certainly, well, anyone who works in a, say, a hospital setting or a school or organisation will know how important leadership is. It affects the quality of our relationships through an organisation. Then you mentioned positive psychology. I know you have an interest in compassion. So it, it is actually interesting. There are a number of uh, intersecting interests that we have, but great to be able to focus on today on the benefit of, of networks. Yep. And so, Julia, I thought we'd even just start with it. You, you touched on it a little bit there in terms of relationships, but if we just take it a little bit broadly to start, what is a network and what are the different types of networks are there? There are a lot of people looking at how organisations function and they tend to think of the networks as the kind of um, most fundamental currency uh, because the people are, are delivering products. Eventually, we may have fully automated digital networks, uh, and then we would maybe focus a lot on the humans that have impacts with those networks. But leaving AI and that kind of thing aside, in most organizations that we have, whether it's a volunteer organization uh, or community group, something like a religious organization one might be a part of, or, um, you know, being with your, your kids and coaching soccer. I mean, all of those things are organizations that have goals. And then obviously any kind of business where people are employed um, in schools and companies and law firms and all of this kind of thing. Uh, it's dependent upon people all knowing what it is they need to do within that group. And then the group understanding how those pieces fit together and what the overall mission or goal or orientation of the group should be. And so the network are the individuals that carry that out. And networks work well um, when there's a real diversity. So, you know, part of what I began studying, um, so my, my PhD is in uh, educational leadership, specifically focusing especially on higher education, although I've been very interested in primary and secondary ex education as well. Um, but higher education was my more specific focus. And when, you see the diversity of these networks when that diversity fails, when there's too much similarity, homogeneity, that everybody is the same. That's when you get things like the major oil spills and the Fukushima nuclear reactor um, going critical, uh, things like that. So I, I looked, I began in my research looking at teams and collaboration because I wasn't quite sure how to refer to my interests. And so I did a lot of, of research on teams. And I would say the network is kind of like when you bring all the different teams, you might say, we have a team dedicated to this part of the mission, a team that works on that kind of thing. You might have a team that have specific functions, even though they work on different aspects of the goals. You know, in a hospital, you might say you have all the different um, units where care takes place. And you have cardiologists and you have people that work in obstetrics and with children, but you have nurses across all of that. 
So you have the team of a unit of care, but you also have a team of nurses that are placed across all these units with the different specialties, yet they have a similar function across these different kinds of groups. So the network is the larger organization where some people might have um, membership or affiliation across several different important teams having to do with their areas of knowledge, interest, um, responsibility, et cetera. So it sounds like one of the key things that networks works can do can uh, be to help achieve a goal. It might be like a cardiology team and so it could be teams of people working in industry, that side of things. So we often think of that productivity aspect, how teams function, what they're for in terms of their achievement, but what are some of the benefits of being part of a network in terms of our human experience, socially, interpersonally? Yeah, well, I guess part of it within teams and networks, um, what you start to see are people carving out niches for themselves that are maybe beyond what we think of normally. So um, there are people that help in the networks that are kind of the go-to people. And those doing um, network analysis in different fields, maybe call those people like the hubs. And it's, you know, it's a person that might be off, let's say they were in a multinational corporation, and they happen to be in charge of one particular warehouse. And uh, let's say they're in Singapore. So they don't have anything to do with product delivery on time to meet deadlines at the, the outposts in um, California or in London. But they turn, to be, turn out to be so efficient at what they do for their goal that others in the company that get to know them might reach out to them, even though their tasks seem so different and the specific aspects of the goal feel different. It, there's a warmth and a helpfulness that this type of person that I called a network enabler exhibits, because I mean enabling in that positive empowerment to make it possible or enable another to be successful, um, that they end up being a special kind of go-to person, a special kind of hub. And there's others that might really like to go out and investigate and um, bring in new things from outside. So they like to think outside the box. And that doesn't matter what their role in the organization might be. It's a personality characteristic or an overall psychological disposition of that person that makes them an asset to a team. Um, for those doing like leadership and organizational uh, work, there's a, a Belbin, B-E-I-B-I-N, Belbin Teams Inventory that has nine different types of specialties. And these are all personality characteristics that someone might have. And let's say you have a very hierarchical unit, um, such as a, a college, and you have a, a as administrative assistants that used to be called secretaries. People generally prefer administrative assistant or executive assistants now. And then you have uh, faculty and instructors and lecturers who are delivering um, instruction and education. You have researchers, those groups might overlap. Uh, and then you usually have administrative leaders like deans uh, and provosts and presidents. And you might think, oh, well, I'm sure those really wonderful characteristics of the really positive side I'm describing, those must be all in the leadership pool. So that would be more in the administrative executive side, right? But what I found was no, they were distributed across because these are personality dispositions. So these are qualities that any of us can carry into our work. Um, there can be a stay-at-home mom who doesn't have a traditional job where she's paid outside of her household, and yet she's the go-to for everyone in the neighborhood because she always knows where the best clinic is and she knows um, what to do if a teacher's being obstructive. And you know, she's helped people with marriage counseling. So you just see these people that take on um, emotional labor, social labor, helping to support one another. And it's regardless of hierarchies. It's regardless of whether or not we've traditionally named it um, a particular type of job or role. Uh, there's are qualities that people demonstrate across all different kinds of endeavors. And that's what I was really interested in because I'd seen these kind of incredibly helpful, compassionate, altruistic people. And what I saw about networks is they see that when a few critical people leave a network, the whole network can suffer. Uh, whatever the productivity or the goal is can become from high performing, winning awards, best in class kind of organization to lagging behind and barely keeping up. And if you look at what's happened, it's not always that they brought on the wrong technology or, or you know, or they just had one bad leader. It can actually be people that were embedded in the organization that had these social skills that we don't always talk about a lot. And they were so key to the relationships of that organization, the relationships of the network, 
functioning well, that then the goals of that network, whatever it were, whatever the goals might be, uh, were all achieved. And seemingly sometimes they make it look easy. And then you have someone leave and everybody realizes that even though it had nothing to do with their job description, they were the only person there that knew what had happened 15 years before. Or they were the only person that had taken on extra projects and learned about this new thing that's coming. And then in their absence, everybody's sort of left like scratching their heads. They don't really know what to do. So, you know, it's really looking at these people that take on qualities that that sometimes defy our job descriptions. You know, they're they're bigger than our job descriptions. So it seems that uh, from what you're describing, people will contribute to networks according to what skills and personality characteristics that they have. And it seems that you're highlighting a particular type of role that people have or when they're functioning very well within certain roles, you're using that term a network enabler. I like the sound of that term, like enabling people to work more effectively and collaboratively as a group, it sounds. What are some of the... Now, you've described some of these characteristics, like people remember some of the history of the organisation, they show caring about other people in different ways, but what are some of the core characteristics of a network enabler that we can maybe learn from and maybe even aspire to? Yeah, one of the things that I looked at was um, the type of person who will always go out of their way to help, regardless of a personal gain. So you have some people that are a lot more transactional. So if they give something, they want to get something. They might be helpful as long as they know how it serves them. That um, is not ultimately as helpful because it doesn't really build a strong relationship of trust and caring. And really strong, robust, resilient relationships are founded in trust and caring or concern. And it has to be genuine. And if I'm always asking as someone you come to for help or advice or mentorship or support on something, and I say, sure, sure, I can do that. But can you also help me? I'm going to need a little extra from you because I need to get my own back. So if you see it as this zero sum game that if I've got given you something, I'm now depleted and you need you owe me that amount back in some form. Um, that's actually not helpful. And it doesn't build a really trusting relationship. I think even in our personal relationships, you know, we see like we go out in groups and we say, oh, I'll pick up the tab. And it's just because it's possible to pay the, the bill for the group. And it's not, you know, if it, if it rotates amongst people, that there's several people in the group that have that kind of, um, I'd like to treat, you know, I'd like to take care of everybody. Everyone kind of relaxes. If it's only one person all the time, it can kind of build up some tension. What's going to happen if we don't let them? Or what's going to happen if they couldn't? Would they feel like they could tell us if they didn't have enough money to pay for a big expensive dinner for the group or something? So, you know, I think it's better when we see this kind of network enabling orientation distribute across a group of people. And I think really in thriving groups, you see several people that really have a strong empowering or enabling orientation. And it really is about a selfless or altruistic aspect that you're not trying to get something back for yourself. And I would say, you know, one, a couple of the main things I learned about this type of person is that they're, they have a lot of integrity. So there's a sense of honesty and trust itself. You know, sometimes in the research, they'll say there's two fundamental things that have to be present for trust. One is um, benevolence that you feel like someone has your best interests at heart, that if they give you a solution, it's because they honestly think it will help you, not because they have some other motive, some ulterior motive that they're trying to manipulate something. Um, if you don't really trust their benevolence, then you don't know how to trust their, their input to you. Um, so you have to think that, and then you have to have competence. So you also have to think, you wouldn't ask um, your neighbor that works on plumbing how to do open heart surgery. They have a lot of competence in one area, and you might ask them if you were having something to do with, you know, with draining and plumbing and even maybe building and things expanding on their expertise, but you wouldn't go way far afield. So, you know, you see that kind of integrity and the building of trust that they have both benevolence and competence. And then there was something beautiful that I saw about the way that this type of person cared about others, that they were genu genuinely interested and might go above and beyond. You know, if they know a colleague um, has has a loved one in the hospital, that they might go out of their way to make it see them and say, are you doing okay? Uh, you know, how's your loved one? Are they doing well in the hospital? You know, do you need some food? Maybe I could help set up a Meals on Wheels. We have these kinds of things, um, at least in the US. I don't know how global they are. But, you know, where you know someone's 
they, they don't have the time to actually prepare food that's needed for themselves or their family because something major is going on. Be the type of person that for no reason, they don't have to do it. It's not their responsibility in any way. They might say, hey, you know, should we set up a little um, Kickstarter campaign to help fundraise for the family? Or do you guys need food? Maybe we could get a little, um, you know, email thread going to make sure you had some help like a couple times a week, you know, something like that. So a really going um, beyond just like concern, like I like you and I hope you're well, see you later, to really checking in a much more heartfelt kind of um, asking meaningful questions to make sure that the answer, if you ask them, how are you doing? And they say, fine. Um, we just say that generally. We're expected to answer fine. And it's it's the people willing to say, are you really? Are you really fine? Are you sure? Um, so it's really going beyond like the surface level to kind of get a little deeper at what's really going on. Well, one thing that strikes me about that is um, along with the elements of authenticity, you're mentioning this integrity, this authenticity, a genuine kind of caring, and you're also mentioning competence, people bring skills. But there's something else that comes to my mind which relates to a therapy term that we use called mentalising. So the notion of mentalising is actually being able to hold another person in mind from their point of view. So mm. what you're describing is rather than a transactional arrangement, people thinking, what can I get out of this for me, thinking, what suits you? And so yeah. thinking of what might benefit the other person, meals on wheels or something like that. So I imagine also that when people are using their competence and their skills, they're using their skills in a way that they're really thinking, how will this be of benefit to their teamworks yeah. and others from their point of view? So I'm actually struck by that because if you like, um, when, when parents are, um, are parenting very helpfully, it'll be from mentalising their child. When we have a very supportive friend, if we have an encouraging colleague, but what you're mentioning is network enablers sound to me like they'd be very good at mentalising. We had a podcast on that because it's such an important theme, but a, a really um, uh, appreciated term. Yeah. And, you know, in, in two different fields where I've looked at the research, one is with emotional intelligence and the other is with um, contemplation and contemplative practices with emotional intelligence. Um, two of the most fundamental skills are accurate self-assessment. So being aware of our of our skills and where we need to grow, being willing to look at both the places we're weaker and the places where we're stronger. So we can leverage those things or, or continue to develop in places that we're weaker. Let's say our job suddenly needs a lot of something from us that we're not great at. You know, So accurate self-assessment would say, I'm not fully qualified in the way this is evolving. I need to go get additional qualifications in some way to be ready to match this new responsibility. So that's self-assessment. But then you have really strong social awareness. And social awareness is actually seeing that people are not the same as you. And that, you know, you might have a colleague in your team and you're all getting assigned this new um, area of expertise that none of you have. And you might have a colleague um, that you can see really struggles with it. And so is there a way to kindly, without making them feel defensive or judge, um, offer something like, oh, I'm going to go get this extra training. Do you want to come with me? It seems really valuable. Like, is there a gentle, kind way to help someone else when you see um, that for them, it's maybe difficult for them to do the self-assessment piece or to um, ask for help or something like that? So that would be maybe the way emotional intelligence researchers might kind of look at a problem at that kind of issue of mentalizing. In contemplation, um, there is a big area called perspective taking. And it's the exact same thing with different words to describe it. It's being able to put yourself in another person's shoes, take their perspective and see how it is for them, like we might do within a family to see, well, I'm an extrovert. So we've been doing a lot of interacting with tons of other people right now. But I know this member of the family is really introverted. That kind of same kind of activity that thrills me and makes me feel really happy might be exhausting for them. I wonder if we need to have some quiet time built into the schedule for them or even the whole family so that as an introvert, we can kind of honor what they're going to need, that they're going to feel pretty depleted from a ton of interaction. So that would be like a, a strong sense of perspective taking. And with uh, meditation and mindfulness, which is the big thing that I teach and use now to help people develop a lot of these skills, um, 
there's a lot of work on mindfulness, which is more awareness and focus and being able to um, maintain our awareness and focus for longer periods of time. A lot of work on compassion, which is the relationship and heart centered um, caring aspect. And then there's a third aspect of perspective taking that there's actually meditations and practices that we can do to help us get better at that perspective taking because it is so fundamental. And I'm so interested by the way that you describe, say, even networks and network enablers in general, it seems that there's maybe this aspect of, say, decentralised leadership to it. I wonder if maybe, say, 50 years ago, you know, in the past, we would have maybe had this top-down approach to leadership where you have someone at the top and they might have a, a strong modus operandi and that sort of infiltrates everyone else within that network. But what I wonder is, is maybe how this idea of a network enabler is different to that idea of leadership, of just almost, say, looking down from the top of a hierarchy and helping out everyone below you. It seems that it's a little bit more intermingled with network enablers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was a big conclusion that I hoped that my research could help people realize that what we have traditionally or formally thought of as leadership maybe doesn't describe this sufficiently, that it's a new form of leadership we should be talking about, that you can be a leader in helping things move forward, helping the organization and other people with across beyond oneself to be successful um, that's a leadership type behavior, but it may not be a person that's named a supervisor and they may not be named a mentor. They may not have a high role in the hierarchy and yet they're doing things that are obviously leadership behaviors. And so, yeah, I agree with you completely. And I looked a lot at different leadership models and some of the ones starting to talk about this are like servant leaders. That there's a real um, thought that even if you are named a leader and in a position in a hierarchy where you're a leader, that you're not there just to do promotion and to to look really successful to others and feel really good about yourself and give yourself a pat on the back. I'm so important. I'm a leader. That instead you have this orientation of how can I help? How can I serve? And so servant leadership starts to get at this, but then you have all the people that aren't named as leaders. So what about them? What do we call them? So, um, you know, there are people talking about distributed leadership, which is this concept. It might be anywhere across or shared leadership that it's, again, distributed, it's shared, we're all carrying the load. And um, I also looked at, at some people that are calling it grassroots leadership. So really seeing it as a, from the bottom, from the ground level up. And especially with social change movements that really look at how things become more progressive, more positive, how we create change. There's a, a lot of focus on on totally flipping our thinking from that hierarchical top-down model to saying actually the fundamental foundation of of the groups, whatever that is, uh, often was taken for granted in the past. Let's really focus on what can come from the grassroots and build up. And the organizations that I've seen that are the most successful, it really is distributed. So they have servant leaders higher up in the organization. They have leaders that are named or at least appreciated for those leadership behaviors, regardless of their position. And then you have the grassroots element that maybe someone is able to step forward and say, I have this new idea that I think could really um, help this group that are working on something, or they could really help the organization if we just tried it like this. And even in my research, part of what surprised me when I was studying these people, I'd sort of observed them my whole life. So it was like a lifelong hypothesis that I was testing. I think the world looks a little bit differently than we're traditionally taught. I think it has these people people in it and they're super important for things to thrive and be resilient and really, really spectacularly achieve goals. I really think they make the difference. So I was testing that in my research to see was I right or wrong. And, you know, sometimes you, it's so fun if you find something surprising. It doesn't always happen. <laughs> and I was surprised to learn. Um, I got to do deep, long, many hour interviews with people nominated by lots and lots of their colleagues as qualifying for this definition of a network enabler consistently helps others to be successful in the organization, regardless of any personal gain, like without uh, attending to that. And what I learned is they were just as good as at their projects as they were at their relationships. So I knew that they had caring and concern and had resilience in their relationship management. But what I learned was no matter what type of position they had from very grassroots, you know, the most fundamental bedrock, least glorified members of the organization to very, very senior leaders, I found people at 
you know, this was a very healthy organization I happened to choose in my research because I found them distributed and that's what you would want to see. And so I found people in, um, because it was an academic unit I was looking at in the administrative assistant category who had completely revolutionized the way that they did spreadsheets. And they brought in new technologies and it saved people tons of time. And then they could share better across their sheets. And they just, you know, so it was something like that, that they were innovating about the projects they work on, as well as being innovative, in my mind, in how they build their relationships. Certainly. And, and the way that you describe this, like I find it so interesting in, say, a sporting context, like I'm a bit, a, a bit of a sporting tragic Juliet. And That's an understatement, <laughs> Juliet, yeah. And, but I think we've almost cottoned on to this idea a little bit without maybe having the language for it. Like, for example, in, in say, sport and, and Australian football is one that comes to mind. I'm not sure if you're, you're very familiar with it, but they talk about, say, for example, leading a culture. So you can have your, your captain on a team, but without them leading a culture and almost you know, finding ways to implement their way of thinking throughout the group, well, then it is just going to be almost someone up the front kind of barking at people and there isn't this kind of integrated approach. And I suppose what I wonder then is, is say, looking at something like, say, a sporting club or group and, and not even at the elite level, like it could be more of a community kind of level organisation, is there maybe, say, slightly different characteristics that are called upon in more of a maybe social context, more of a maybe less formalised context than something, say, like an academic institution or a certainly a workplace, like a, a professional place of work. Are there any differences there between almost the, say, the, the formal professional and, say, the informal, say, just, yeah, more loosely organised groups, whether it be around a community or, or family or something like that? I actually think so many of the qualities transfer, they translate across these domains. We just tend to use different vocabulary when we're talking about the, the personal sector uh, and the personal sphere of our, um, not how we're being paid, but what we love to do. You know, so it might be musicians playing in an orchestra. It might be uh, members of a local club playing on a team. Um, we might just use different words, but I actually think the qualities of being, the way that we can be that is healthiest for us and uplifts the whole group is quite universal across across these domains. And maybe we use more formal terms if we're talking about it in a professional workplace. But I think they're somewhat universal. Um, you know, I think about let let's say it was a, a local um, sporting club doing you know football or soccer if you're in the U.S. And you know, in the past they'd won, but they had a really strong coach let's say, you know, and the coach really showed people how to make the most of their skill sets and knew how to put the players in the right, in the right spots. So they were going to be, you know, on the ball the way they needed to be. And then the coach is left and the team is like not doing well, because now there's nobody with that insight about what's each person best at, how do you get them in the places where they are the best, and then the whole thing's going to you know, be more successful. The group's going to make more goals and win more games. And people tend to get low in morale. It's not so fun. Nobody really knows what's going on. But even if a couple of people started to say, well, let's just do rotations because we need to see who's going to be good um, at doing, you know, the, the front positions or the defense or who's going to be the right, the best goalie. Um, let's keep working on that. So let's like rotate everybody and see who's good. And that maybe as a consensus, start to become aware of the skills and start looking out for each other. And someone on the team who's kind of quiet might say, well, I thought so-and-so did really great at that the other day. And so then there's this distributed leadership that maybe would start to emerge. And a coach comes in and appreciates that. New coaches valuing that amongst the team. Okay, let's all figure this out. Hey, let's come up with a goal. Let's do something fun. Let's say we just want to win like two out of 10 games. And then we're going to do something really, really fun for the whole team, you know, making some sort of a realistic stretch goal for the team, you know, that maybe we could really do it. But maybe they, you know, they have so much fun and they start winning. They get a lot better morale. People start understanding where they should be, what positions they should play um, and looking out for each other, you know, knowing what each other's look. If you see somebody that's really starting to struggle and normally they're doing well, you might be able to go to the coach and say, hey, I think you need to put the replacement in. I really think he needs a break. I can just see that he's not at the usual. She's not at the usual football 
form that they're usually able to do this so consistently, something's a little bit off, you know, can we do it in a way that doesn't make them feel angry or upset? You know, so this this looking out for each other and the sense of a shared purpose or shared goal, we can have that even if it's, you know, how we're volunteering at church to get a fun drive together or to collect toys for children around a holiday or in a sporting club for the community. You just want to win some matches and feel feel good, and have a good time. But it's the same thing, actually, in uh, very high stakes professional organizations. It's the same principles that apply. Do we look out for one another? Are we able to kind of help spot when somebody's um, struggling uh, and come up with ways that are that caring about that person, not trying to label them as a problem or come down really hard on them? All of those things hit the morale, not just of that person, but of anybody that knows about it, whether they witness it or they hear about it later. Um, when people are treated badly, we all suffer. And that's sort of that first point we were making at the very, very beginning about that we are social beings. The impact on the group, you know, you can get this attitude of like, oh my gosh, this is so fun. Let's show up and do this. And you get less people, you know, skipping out or dropping out in in clubs and things that are more voluntary. People stick with it. But in organizations, people see less sick days, people taking less um, jobs from competitors and leaving the organization. They're having too much of a good time doing what they're doing to want to do something else and it just brings much more commitment and um and less sick days because they're actually healthier i mean and some of it's calling out sick and feeling a little like i could just kind of say i can't show up for the match today because i just i'm not feeling it and you can say oh I'm, I'm under the weather you pretend that you're sick but you're not completely totally sick so there's that which is more of an emotional attitude of not feeling well and not feeling committed that you might call it a sick day, but there's literally getting sick. And there's been some research looking at people's health and, and well-being. And it, it increases when we have positive mood and positive emotions and that shared sense of purpose and that everybody has each other's backs and really cares that everybody's going to do well together. Not a few superstars. You know, not just that one leader that always makes a goal, but actually you want to make sure everybody has an opportunity to have a good time. Even if the team won less games, it would be more important that everyone on the team got to do something they were good at and love doing it. That kind of thing can, you know, it's not going to be the right team for someone who wants to be be on the Olympics one day. They really want that every single person's got to be a super high performer. But in general, for almost all people, uh, it's going to be the kind of group that you want to belong to. And other teams will come up and say, what's your secret? It's that kind of thing. And they end up making movies about it. So it's like all the sporting movies, like the Mighty Ducks and Major League. And my references are old because I don't watch a lot of new sporting movies. But, you know, things like that, where you see this team that comes from behind and wins everything and you hear about it all the time. People love these stories. Usually it has a lot to do with morale and relationship. A bit of theme of Ted Lasso, I would say. Yeah, definitely. But I find it so interesting the way that you even describe this. And like what, what comes to mind for me, for example, is so in, in Australia, we have very high numbers relatively of, say, participation sport. And I think there's almost this element to which people self-organise our, our groups and our networks almost a little bit like the way that you're describing in terms of you might have, say, a local cricket club. Well, they'll have the president, they might have the treasurer, you know, the secretary, but then they'll have, you know, the bloke who brings the oranges and sort of organise all that sort of stuff. But there's almost this more naturally decentralised way to, say, more informal and, and voluntary organisations, even, say, amongst friendship groups. You might have a few people kind of pop their head up to organise something and that responsibility gets shared around a little bit and what I wonder then is with say some of these say institutions and organizations that are in a maybe more formal context like a professional or an academic context is there an element to which people almost need to give themselves a bit of permission to take on that role in terms of you know someone might be in a situation where they think oh you know I could add a little bit here or there but I just don't know if, you know, I might be stepping on someone's toes or I wonder if you could speak mm -hmm. a little bit about how maybe an organisation can adapt to maybe bring out some of the people who, who would fill this role well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a good question. So in an organisation, you know, in some of the traditional leadership where it's more hierarchical, people can be afraid to speak up and afraid to volunteer or afraid to suggest someone else, afraid to admit any weaknesses, you know, or concerns. And again, those are the kinds of things where 
the team does that overall it doesn't thrive as well. We don't perform as well when we have taskmaster leaders that are just sort of crapping, cracking the whip and reminded you let, what the negative consequences are if you fail to perform. If you're having to like, it's just like parenting in a household. If all you're doing is threatening punishment and that's the only thing keeping the kids in in a good behavior, the family's not in a great place. If it's just the threat of punishment that keeps people behaving, societies break down. You know, we use that with the prison systems too. And instead, if we think we want to be good because we believe in this, we love being a part of it, how can we how can we perform better? And that the leaders have to sort of make space for the insight and the intuition and the intellect and the creativity and the unknown potential that hasn't been expressed yet of every member of the organization. And I think um, the organizations that are doing this well are really seeing like everybody might know best for themselves and their close teammates uh, what the opportunities are, what the growth potential is, and helping to create opportunities for one another or for the teams themselves, you know, thinking, well, that team over there, they really need a shot at this because I think they could probably do that now um, in a really like overly power driven top-down authority structure, there's often not space to communicate those things, and then everything suffers as a result. So I think it is really important for leaders to, to evolve and to recognize that every single person in your organization um, could be, you know, the diamond in a the rough. They could be a genius in disguise, and they could be a genius at something that the organization doesn't even recognize it needs yet. And if we're willing to listen, um, that's why I think the growth mindset that we maybe don't know everything in this moment. And if we learned more, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be great? There's some people that think if we had to learn anything else, it would make me look like an idiot because I didn't already know it. And then we're afraid to admit weakness and we're afraid to uh, let other people speak up. So that's that's a fear orientation. But instead, if we have a possibility, a positive, optimistic orientation of like we didn't know something. That's pretty cool. What do you think it is we didn't know? And and how quickly might we need to know it? And who could be a lead for us to learn it? That's a growth orientation that says, okay, actually, that seems really important that you've realized that. We should probably get on that really quickly and making sure that the right people that want to do it are given that possibility to step up uh, versus saying, well, it has to be so-and-so because they're in that type of role. So they have to take it on. It's all of this sort of predetermined, very fixed or rigor rigor rigid kind of orientation. It doesn't serve us well. Things are much more organic than that. Yes. And uh, actually, before the podcast, you sent us an email where you described a Gallup poll uh, research uh, project where they looked at the importance of people in a work setting feeling that someone cares about them and how it makes much of a difference as well if that person might happen to be a boss or people in leadership positions. Would you say a little bit more about that, about research that shows how it really makes a difference to workplaces and probably uh, not only staff retention but even the bottom line, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the Gallup organization has been doing uh, workplace surveys and research for more than 100 years. So they have a huge body of work. I think they started more in North America, but they have a lot more global research now. So they there's more diversity because I think, you know, some people from around the world might catch this and think, is it the same? Is it the same in Brazil as it is in Pakistan, as it is in Rwanda, as it would be in America? Are the, the cultures are different. So would these kinds of things apply? Um, there are more and more people looking at this, which I think is important. Just as a side note, <laughs> that globally we should think about how culture intersects with these qualities. I suspect that these are all quite universal things, though. So with the Gallup research, we used it a lot when I worked for the School of Medicine. It had more than a thousand people practicing medicine. They were researchers, uh, instructors, and those providing patient care. Some were usually doing two out of those three functions. And they might be with the the hospital, the teaching hospital for 40 years. So you're trying to think throughout their lives, what do they need to thrive? So we did a lot of looking at workplace satisfaction. Because if you lose somebody in a key role, it costs the organization a lot of money to go back into recruitment. And once there's turnover, you often see several people in similar roles leaving. So there can be a domino effect of losing. And I think with this piece I'm talking about with network enablers, they're a very, very special kind of group. They found each other. If you lose a network enabler, the next one is more likely to go. And if you lose several, the organization really suffers. So with the workplace satisfaction, you really do want to keep people feeling like they're um, committed 
they have high employee engagement they talk about sometimes and you know one of the like top three survey questions that they've asked over 100 years that was the highest question linked to that overall workplace satisfaction and the engagement really doing the best you can at your job not just showing up and kind of going through the motions but really going at it when you're just in the flow and all kinds of good things come the the difference there was because they could answer that question i have someone in my workplace who cares about me and it really seemed like a non sequitur at first. People didn't had not connected caring with the workplace environment. They're very focused on the skills and abilities that people need um, in order to do their job well. But it turns out they're not going to apply those skills and abilities if they're not engaged and they're not happy. They're going to be sort of halfway there and they're going to leave as soon as they can. Or they just have a lot more uh, calling out sick absenteeism, that they're not present as often as they can be not present versus someone who's really engaged, loves their job. They're not going to tend to take a lot of of extra leave. They're not going to ex accept a, you know, offer from some competing organization. They're going to stay doing what they're doing because they love it. And, and it was really surprising, I think, to even to the Gallup people to realize that that question about I have someone in my workplace who cares about me and has my best interest at heart. Uh, that's that trust piece, benevolence, to have someone's best interest at heart. That's sort of woven into how they've asked that question. Um, and it can be really powerful if it is your supervisor, because the opposite is so difficult. Let's say you have people that care about you, but your supervisor doesn't see your value and they're coming down hard on you and they don't think that you're well qualified or they're um, not pleasant in some way can still lead to really low morale. So overall, it's good if we can be aware of our attitude and our treatment towards one another, whether it's a family, um, our volunteer and sport activities or in our professional domains, you know, um, do we care about one another? If we actually don't care how anybody else is doing but ourselves, um, we need to look at that. Because usually if we only care how we're doing, that points to us being more enough in a survival mode, in a fight or flight, freeze kind of activated situation where you don't feel that you're cared for. And so you're just out for yourself because you just need what you need to cut the bare minimum to get through it. We want to get out of that sort of sympathetic nervous system fight or flight mode that just has the bare minimum as what's required and get into the, the sort of parasympathetic nervous system where we, we see better, we hear and listen better, we're much more attuned to others, we get less egos, you know, locked in our egos, we get out of that. And, and so that's what I think you see in healthy organizations where people are thriving and caring about one another. Such a fundamental principle. It reminds me of a famous Harvard study where they followed people up over five or six decades to look at longevity. And one of the factors that predicted longevity was people feeling that they had someone who really cared about them, typically a spouse, but it might have been close friends or others that actually led to people living longer. But, but if, we talk yes. about, if we talk about networks, I can't help but bring up one of my favourite networks, Juliet. Uh, you know this, you're, you're a core uh, network enabler in this organisation. It's called the Coincidence Project. And one of the things I think that, that actually came further out of the pandemic is people found <laughs> through Zoom connections and virtual connections. It's actually in some ways more accessible now or easier and, and more readily people are used to this to connect with people around the world. So mm -hmm. I, I'm delighted to be part of this network where uh, I've, I've virtually not met anyone personally except for people I knew beforehand. We haven't met face to face but we've met many times over Zoom. Sadly for me it's usually about one o'clock or three o'clock <laughs> in the morning depending on daylight saving <laughs> in our country or the other. But it's wonderful to connect with people around the world and the Coincidence Project, which is a project very close to your and my hearts, is about the about meaningful coincidences and how they impact on people's lives. And so uh, many people involved in that have written books on synchronicity, very interested in synchronicity and serendipity. But I, I think this might be an opportunity for you to describe a little bit about the Coincidence Project and where it's at, because this is a network that anyone who has that very specific interest in how coincidences impact on our lives, they can uh, join up with this project and access it through, well, Facebook and different virtual meetings. So would you like to say something about the Coincidence Project? Yeah, yeah. For those listening or viewing that are curious, it's thecoincidenceproject.net for the website that learns more. And, you know, I, I was assisting 
Bernard Beitman, who has a very successful podcast called Connecting with Coincidence from the beginning. So he brought me on board as the sort of first partner. Uh, and he said, I've been studying this stuff for 20 years and it's just my passion. And I think culmination of my life's work to create a global organization, to see this get out there because it makes people's lives so much better. And he's a psychiatrist and has looked at, you know, Jungian perspectives as well as patient care treatment over decades and seen how meaningful coincidences can help people in their therapeutic journeys. It can help strengthen relationships because when you share a coincidence with someone, you have a special kind of magical moment or bond, um, something unique and interesting that's happened to you or the small group of you or pair of you um, and that sort of thing. And he had done research on it, but wasn't sure how to create kind of an international movement uh, to bring this more into awareness and to, to see how much it can help people in their lives. And he knew of my background and I wasn't working full time at the university anymore. I'd gone to independent work as a consultant and a teacher and creating courses and that sort of things. He said, would you come on board now that you have capacity? And, and it was a nice timing coincidence because I had chosen to become an independent consultant and creator of my own work at the start of 2020. And he knew that I was available. Mm -hmm. And then I had certain plans that probably would have had me engaged at full time, except there was this thing, the COVID-19 pandemic that came three months later. And a lot of my plans for international work, for example, traveling and being with colleagues in other countries to do the kind of well-being and compassion work I like to do, uh, I couldn't travel. So I had more capacity. And Bern Bernie saw this and said, hey, since you're not as occupied as you thought you would be, how about you come on board with me and help me dream this thing up? And one of the things that we did right from the very beginning, after I said yes, which I did right away, <laughs> was we, we looked at coincidence as like a fundamental operating principle. And we said, not only how do we study it and let people talk about and share their really interesting experiences of it, how would we create an organization that that enabled coincidence to be one of the means by which the organization could grow and could thrive? So we really paid attention to coincidences that brought certain people our way to be part of the project. And we looked a lot at good leadership practices, which is a lot of my background. and thought very hard about, you know, how do you build a really healthy organization? Because ultimately, what we want the organization to be able to do is to help us better address major critical problems facing life on earth at this time. Ultimately, that's where we want to go. But we can't start there immediately. It's too lofty and, and out there. But if we link people together, and they're willing to create new coalitions, of like-minded individuals, then we have a lot of shared ideas and genius and creativity. But we first, we had to figure out how do we get people to link together well? And so my network enabling research really was an underpinning of how I've thought about designing our programs, that we made sure that we didn't have too much of a top-down structure. And we, we, we created a board where the board has shared decision-making for the organization, rather than saying it's all in the hands of the president. And then the board just sort of ratifies things. Uh, we didn't set it up like that. In the U.S. with nonprofits, there's two types of nonprofits. And one has a very, very strong president leadership role. The other is that it's completely shared. So we were very conscious in choosing the type of organization where leadership and uh, decision making and responsibility legally and creatively is completely shared. And then we've really thought about in all of our events that we set up. How do we make sure there's opportunities for people to all speak, you know, that everybody has a chance to voice something that's that's true for them at some point uh, so that it's not just a few people talking that are comfortable talking, but making sure there's opportunities for everybody to speak. So there's lots of strategies we've been using to try to bring these best practices about network enabling into the coincidence project. And, you know, you have to kind of know it and believe it and share it. So that other people, um, it's kind of like you were saying, Rowan, about building the sports teams, that you're also leading a culture. You're not just leading a function, you're leading a culture. And we were very thoughtful and intentional about the fact that we wanted to build a culture that from the very beginning um, was about sharing responsibility. It was about empowering everybody that comes to 
um, take a lead. You know, we trade off in our Coincidence Cafe. We have it every month. We've done it 28 months in a row now. And we have new co-hosts um, every single month. And then I, I sort of stay in the background as the sort of standing co-host. And I kind of coach the two people, occasionally just one person that'll host a meeting. And, and that's a way of saying anybody that comes might eventually be a leader of one of our events because everybody has insight. Everybody has gifts to bring. They might bring topics we've never even thought about. And how awesome is that? So there's that growth mindset and that that shared or distributed leadership as kind of the fundamental operating principles for the organization. And it seems like you have, have been a, a major part in that, uh, Juliet, from, Very much from so. what dad's told Very me. Very much and, so. And, but I, I think it's such an interesting idea. And like you are, I think, the perfect person to be speaking with this about. Because so one in, uh, idea I'm, I'm interested in is how do you get people all pulling in the same direction? Because like ev even with something like, say, the Coincidence Project, like feel free to sort of use this as an example if you so please. But bringing in people from all over the world with maybe different ideas about where they want to go and, and what they want to do, that like, can be a, a difficult thing. And there's a, a famous example in Australia. Again, I go back to the sports examples. I'm a bit of a one-trick pony with these sometimes, Juliet. But there was a, a sports team, football team, a couple of years ago in Australia called the Sydney Swans. And they were a you know, good organisation. They'd done okay. They were relatively new. And one of the things that they did was they they hearkened back to an idea sort of deep within their history and they called it, say, the Bloods culture. And so instead of, say, having a, a captain who, you know, imparted his ideas on the team and, you know, either that stuck or it didn't, they almost harnessed this idea of a unifying idea that they could all get behind and all pull together in the same direction with and I wonder if the, the Coincidence Project seems to have a little bit of that in terms of maybe coincidences and, and the impact that they can have on our lives and the world. But I wonder if you could maybe speak to this idea of how organisations maybe work well. And I wonder if maybe the, the ones that are able to harness this distributed leadership maybe do have maybe a, a unifying idea in a way or something that is able to bring people together, maybe stop people acting like, say, disparate agents just for their own uh, interests. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's, it's a balancing act because you want to have that kind of shared ultimate mission or purpose that brings people to be part of it without cutting off their creativity. If they want to kind of then self assemble into areas of interest, for example. So is there room to kind of make sure it fits in the overarching theme that the, you know, the ship is pointed in a certain direction and yet it could do many things to get there. So I think it's, it's a bit of a looseness about the process by which you're going to achieve the big goal, but then a little bit of more of a, a solidification or clarity about what that goal is. And, you know, even with us, it took us, we started meeting with lots of people that were very knowledgeable about meaningful coincidences and synchronicity and serendipity. And it was totally voluntary. And Chris has been there from the very beginning. And we had nearly two years worth of monthly meetings uh, with people that just opted in to help us dream this up uh, before we made it formal and created, you know, like a board agreement of what the responsibilities of being on the board would be. We had to make sure we were going to be a nonprofit and not a for-profit organization, all those things. And we had to go a little bit slowly in the forming stages because we didn't want to get ahead of the group. And one thing that we talked about a lot, Bernie as a, and I as sort of like co-founding this as an organization was we will have some ideas, but they're not all the ideas and they won't even necessarily be the very best of the ideas. So we need to be able to vet and test our ideas with the people that are that are already engaged and wanting this to become something neat and also solicit their ideas. So we did a number of different sessions on brainstorming and visioning and coming up with mission and stuff. So we had to iterate a lot to make sure that everybody's voices had been heard before we converged upon a final vision statement and mission statement. It took us about two years to really get there. And I can't tell you the number of pages in my Google documents. I kept like every iteration and some people that really like to converge more quickly. They really want to get to the point, tell me what it is and let's do it. We're not a great fit for where we were as an organization in those early stages. Once we have more clarity, we might be the right organization for someone's like, okay, now that fits me. Let's go. I want to help. I like to just put fuel in the system and see it go fast. But we went from like, it could be anything to it's going to be this thing. 
Um, and so we, we wanted to go a little more slowly and make sure that we built it well rather than just building it fast. And it's important for groups to know, like, you know, if it's really critical deadline time, it might be difficult to do that. But if you haven't heard from everybody in the organization, they're not going to be as committed. I mean, when I was looking at um, organizational theory uh, in my doctorate work, the most important thing I learned from two semester long courses on organizational theory, I'll sum up a year of study with one statement, people commit to what they help create. And if ah, they're yes. voice valued, their input valued, yeah. their expertise, their brilliance, their the, the possibilities they bring by existing value was it was part of the DNA. It got in there. They're so committed. But if you decide ahead of time for a bunch of people and you say, I know this is the way it's going to be this one thing, then you're going to only get the people that would have already agreed with you. And then the other people are going to choose away. They're going to filter themselves out. And you're not going to probably have as many people in like a leadership team or a board um, if you have this really just, you know, sometimes you have like a pioneering leader with a very specific vision. Uh, but this, we wanted something that would be globally diverse and inclusive. I could have, you know, programs in schools, be a course of study in psychology departments to look at meaningful coincidences and their benefit for mental health and well-being. That's where we want to go. Ultimately, we would like like to see it around the world people all ages you know 90 years old 30 years old 11 years old we still want to know their meaningful coincidence stories and so because we had such a broad vision for where this could could eventually the impact it could make uh bernie and i knew that just two people would not ever be smart enough to have all the right ideas about how to organize it we knew we needed a collective and so we made sure that all of our processes were collective in nature too I love the way that you described that. And there's a, a metaphor that I heard one time, which I just thought was absolutely brilliant, changed my way of thinking a little bit. But I was in a, it was just a, a webinar actually, and someone was delivering that and, you know, they were doing really well and they were obviously a really good leader, but there wasn't much sort of interaction, say, between, you know, the, the crowd and the presenter, for lack of a better term. And he, uh, he basically just stopped things at one stage and sort of said, you know, this isn't, you know, me giving a lecture. This is a campfire situation in terms of we want everyone to sort of sit around the fire and feel they can contribute in whatever way that they want to. And that aspect of almost having a bit of a campfire seems to be something that, that you've really implemented well with the Coincidence Project. Yeah. And, you know, our Coincidence Cafe is open, free and open to anybody from the public. And it's the third Saturday of every month. And um, that's the one where I said we've done 28 in a row, but we're always having new leaders and we always have new topics and themes. And I'm always collecting beautiful images from the kind of royalty free image groups for our website and our publicity and stuff. I actually have a number of campfire images saved. <laughs> I haven't I haven't used them yet, but because I don't know if everybody around the world would get that image or not. But I know at some points I'm gonna roll that into it because I really see Coincidence Cafe as like this beautiful, like everyone's around the fireside at night and you're like, hey, who's got a story? I've got a story. You know, people have done this since the beginning of time that everybody gathers around and they say, who's got a story? And sometimes it might be a story of war because everyone's on conquest and you're, you know, or it might be everybody's 12 year old and uh, obsessed with the supernatural. So it's who's got a ghost story. You know, we have these traditions of like sharing our stories and, um, you know, sharing a meal. Hopefully we'll be having these more in person now that COVID's, COVID has passed. We'd love to see the Coincidence Cafes go uh, viral. And we want to get like Coincidence Cafe Sydney and Coincidence Cafe New York and Coincidence Cafe Caracas. You know, we really want to see that happen with, with people that would want to organize it for their community. And they would like the concept and then they would want to create their own expression of it. And, and that would be something we didn't need to control, you know, because really we, what we want to do is empower people's um, to, to step forward and say, yeah, I do have a story. I have a really interesting, meaningful coincidence. Let me tell, about, tell you about this time. And, and that's what we want. So it's totally, it's totally the fireside chat. That's it in a nutshell, Rowan. <laughs> yes, well, I, I love that uh, fireside chat notion crossing there that's a little bit synchronistic in itself that you already have those images Juliet and um, unfortunately we have to finish very shortly and we'll certainly have the links <laughs> to the coincidence project as well in our session notes today but um, just a couple of things I think we do have such an advantage with the coincidence project with a unifying theme that say you were bringing up Rowan there's something about experiencing meaningful coincidences that tends to connect us 
to other people, yeah. more deeply to ourselves and the world beyond. So yeah. it's got that theme of connection built in that uh, so yes. many people appreciate and draws us together. But one other massive advantage that we have in the Coincidence Project, and people will have heard this from your description of things today, Juliet, I- I've always thought of you as being a very inspired leader but uh, now I see you as a very inspired enabler particularly (laughs) but that has the leadership characteristics wonderfully working with it and again I'd like to acknowledge Bernie Beitman for his inspiring work in that area his podcast connecting with coincidence is one of my favorites I would have listened to more than a hundred episodes and (laughs) Bernie's kept that going for years with with your support as well but um, just wonderful to be able to speak with you today Julie and you certainly model the very characteristics that you're describing. And they say that people tend to do research in areas that's meaningful to themselves. Well, our (laughs) listeners will see how obvious it is uh, why you chose that particular (laughs) subject. I I know. I I realised when I was interviewing all my network enablers because the researcher side of me kept a very neutral facade. I didn't want to nod too much. Like, tell me, you know, I just, I had my questions that I would ask in every interview. And then I want to be very neutral and just receive whatever they want to offer. But inside I was often jumping up and down. Oh yes, that's so great. Me too, me too. And it, it just kept happening. That inside I was sort of jumping up and down, like all happy, like, oh, that's such a nice, oh yeah, me too, I've done that. You're right, that is so helpful when you do these things. Like that kind of stuff was happening. And later I became friends with some of the people I interviewed because I said, okay, my study's done. Can we get together again? And I had realized through the process of the interviews that, oh, this does, I am like one of these people I didn't think so at first. I actually really, um, really admired my mother, who's one of those teachers that changed lives. We couldn't go to the grocery store or the post office or travel out of town to a hotel in the middle of the forest. It's still going to be one of the people my mom taught. And they're still going to say, oh, Mrs. Trail, this was the yours was the most important course I ever took. And let me tell you what I remember about your class from 45 years ago. Or, uh, you know, I became an English teacher, too, etc. She was just that kind of person that always change lives. And when I initially began the study and watching for how can I do research on this, it was because I'd seen that she had this kind of leadership that wasn't captured in schools because she was in her classroom changing the lives of all the people around her, not a principal, not someone named as a leader. And and so I just thought, I want to study this leadership without leading thing. I want to figure out how to get at this. And it was just only over time of being present with other people that did it. I was like, oh, it does describe me too. But I felt very humble about it because I wasn't trying to kind of, you know, study myself and glorify it. I just had seen um, how impactful and what a gift we can be to others when we truly are invested in them and their well-being and how it stays with them. You know, that I would see people throughout my my whole life and my mom has passed now and I still have people that she changed their lives that write me because they just need to tell someone again who knows and who gets it, like how important it was the way she cared about them and the way that they got to be in her class themselves and, you know, that sort of thing. So that it, it started out much more of an out there and it became more and more of an in here kind of um, area at, as my research progressed. But well, thank that's you. All, that's also <laughs> that's, a wonderful story about your mum. Yeah, it's a, a, yeah. W- a wonderful notion. I suppose just one final thought for me to finish on Juliet as well. And it's a little bit of a, a, a downer in some ways. But recently in Australia, there was a, a terrible bus crash and a number of people died. And just in my own personal life, I've had this recent realization where, you know, the, the place that this occurred was a very small town I think only 5,000 people but I know a lot of people who have been affected by this in terms of yeah different groups friends who don't know each other and it's really brought me to the realization of just how connected we all are I think we saw it a little bit in COVID as well in terms of you know everyone in the world is is connected in in a way and so I think it's really good timing, even just on a personal level, Juliet, to be talking to you because uh, I've yeah been a bit more reflective recently about the fact that we are all you know in a number of networks, even probably more than we even realise. And so I, I know for my own, I'll, I'll uh, be reflecting on it a little bit. And it seems from what you've you've told us today that there are so many maybe small things that we can do that are really going to make a, a noticeable difference. So yeah, th- thank you so much for for chatting with us today. It's it's yeah been insightful and I've really enjoyed it. 
Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Maybe it won't be our only conversation. Who knows? I feel like we could keep going. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we, we could go on for hours. We, we, could, we certainly could, Julia, but thank you very much. I really like the way that you make the world a better place. Oh, thank you. <laughs> look forward to catching up soon with the coincidence. And I project. will just mention as well, so Dad mentioned a couple of links that we'll put up. We'll put those up. Uh, you can access the episode page at psychspiels.com.au. So uh, oh, there'll be, I think, plenty of a, uh, plenty of stuff to put up there today. It's been a, a great conversation, and, and thanks so much again, Juliet. Thank you, Juliet. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. That was great. Thank you so much. Thanks,